You are listening to episode 60 of the Autism Mom Coach, Turning Autism Around with Dr. Mary Barbera. As you all know, I coach moms raising kids with autism about how to manage their minds and regulate their emotions so that when their children are dysregulated, they can stay calm or at least calmer. But still, I do tons of coaching with my clients about what do I do to help my child regulate him or herself. And so for this question and questions like that, I brought on Dr. Mary Barbera because she is an expert in the field. She is a board-certified behavioral analyst, a best-selling author, and a course creator for parents and professionals about how to help children with an autism diagnosis who are struggling with things like talking and tantrums, eating, sleeping, potty training, and more. In this episode, you will learn how Mary went from a mother in denial to a woman on a mission to help first her son and then many other children and families impacted by autism. But before we get started, I just want to remind you all who is the expert in your child's life, and that is you. Mary is an expert in her field, and she has experience raising her child with autism, just as I do. Neither me nor Mary are the expert on your child. I say this because I don't want you to use anything you hear in this podcast episode or really any of my episodes against yourself. If we say something that does not comport with your lived experience, then that's fine because people are going to have different experiences. They're going to have different points of view. They're going to have different things that worked for their child that may or may not work for yours. With all of that said, I hope that you enjoy this episode and I hope that you remember you are the expert on your child. With that, let's talk to Mary. Welcome to the Autism Mom Coach Podcast. I am your host, Lisa Candera. I am a lawyer, a life coach, and most importantly, I am the full-time single mother of a teenager with autism and other comorbid diagnoses. I know what it is like to wonder if you are doing enough or the right things for your child and to live in fear of their future. I also know that constantly fueling yourself with fear and anxiety is not sustainable for you or of any benefit to your child. That is why in this podcast, I will share practical strategies and tools you can use to shift from a chronic state of fight flight to some calm and ease. You are your child's greatest resource. Let's take care of you. Welcome everyone to the podcast. I am so excited here to have Dr. Mary Barbera. Mary is an autism expert and I am going to have her introduce herself. Yeah. So thank you for having me, Lisa. You were on my Turn Autism Around podcast, which aired a little bit ago. And so I'm excited to kind of turn the tables and have you ask me some questions. So I like to start with just kind of my fall into the autism world, quote unquote, you know, my son, Lucas, who's now 26, started to show signs of autism after his first birthday, but I was pregnant with my second son, Spencer, and I was a new mom and I had no idea. I mean, I had a master's degree in nursing, but I didn't really know much about child development. And back then in the late 1990s, there was like 
not really the internet. AOL was just coming to be a thing, but it's not like you could just search for things. And and so I missed the first signs and my husband first mentioned it when Lucas was just 21 months of age. I was really like, what are you talking about? You know, because I just had my second son. And to me, Lucas seemed fine. You know, he wasn't doing anything alarming. He just some of the words he had were kind of gone. And and my husband, because he's a physician, saw a lot of little kids and just had a better idea of what autism might look like in a toddler. That makes sense. Because when you said your husband pointed it out, I was like, wow, that's really interesting that that was just a really fast catch, especially back then in the 90s where autism wasn't talked about like, you yeah. know, in a variety and of ways. It was one in 500. And, but one of the things that really concerned him was the fact that I had a, our second baby and he was 18 months when I had the second baby. And literally we could have brought home a plastic doll for as much of awareness, you know, an 18 month old. I mean, it is a little, but you usually could be like, mommy has a baby in her belly, not knowing what that's interpreted to be, but just like completely oblivious to the whole thing. So that I think was a concern. And then his language, which actually developed pretty early with some words, you know, before age one and stuff were they were still there, kind of what I call now pop out words, but it was all confusing, you know, and then the baby got sick and Lucas got sick. It's winter. We're watching too much Barney, you know, and it's just like, I'm just trying to get through. And then all of a sudden, my husband mentions a possibility, which I told him on that day, it's not autism. I never, ever want to hear the word autism again, which is really ironic, Lisa, you know how many times you say it. <laughs> but I went into a deep state of denial, and that didn't help Lucas. It didn't help me. It didn't help anybody, but it is what it is, you know? And so 21 months, and then he didn't get the diagnosis of moderate to severe autism until the day before he was three, and didn't start intensive therapy until 39 months of age. So, you know, that's a long time. And just, I I was a nurse. I still am a nurse technically. And I was always in the neuro field. And so just like that critical first year after a stroke or critical first year after brain injury or the first hour after a heart attack, but, you know, the neuro part of plasticity or changeability of the brain. And really the sooner you act, as soon as there's any signs or seems to be off track. But that's hard because you're a first-time mom, babies go through phases, each baby has their own personality, babies get sick, you know, like it is confusing, but I didn't realize how much responsibility was on me to really look at his development. So anyway, you know, he got the diagnosis. We started applied behavior analysis, ABA treatment, which was back in the 90s, the most proven therapy for children with autism. It still is the most proven, although it has its controversies. And and then I became the founding president of the Autism Society in my county. And then I became a board certified behavior analyst in 2003. So we're t- talking 20 years ago, which is so, you know, ironic. And even after Lucas you know, was diagnosed, I was very involved with his therapy. And I realized how little people knew, you know, and how much like coordination and dedication. And it was just like, whoa, 
this is a lot. And I have my master's in nursing administration. I was responsible for 24-7 care, hiring, firing, you know, coordination of care, rehab, nursing, coordination with OTs and PTs and multidisciplinary team goals. And so like my background was like really good for all of this, you know, and I was just like, wow, I really have to get more involved. And and that's when I became a behavior analyst and wrote two books. My first book, The Verbal Behavior Approach, was published in 2007. It's in 17 languages. I've traveled around the world speaking on autism. And my second book was published in 2021, two years, Turn Autism Around. And the subtitle is really important to this book. It's an action guide for parents of young children with early signs of autism. Because it basically, I went back down the mountain to gather up the parents who were in denial, who were on waiting lists. You know, this book is also helpful for older kids who are still struggling with talking, tantrums, eating, sleeping, potty training, going to the doctor's dentist haircuts without a fuss. You know, all the things. Like my son is still functioning. He's 26, but he has moderate severe autism and intellectual disability. So he's still functioning in some ways as a three to five-year-old, you know, language ability. He can't be left alone. And so I wanted to go back down and write a book for parents who have, you know, a child with early signs of autism with or without a diagnosis and also help older kids who have more moderate severe needs. But that's it's just basically about me, you know, it's it's a lot. I I then transformed, so I transformed from mom to behavior analyst to author. And then I became an online marketer and a podcaster and a creator. Eight years now I've been selling online courses for parents and professionals from over 100 countries. Wow. And that's pretty much what I do all day long. Okay. So we'll get to that in a second. I just want to circle back to a couple of things you said. You said that it wasn't until your son was 39 months old that he got diagnosed. And, And I just wanted to say that I have a lot of parents who like your husband think maybe autism, not sure. And they do actually ask the questions and they raise it with the pediatricians. And I've heard so many parents, especially the parents, first time parents of boys, saying things like, no, you know, it's just, you know, boys talk later, you know, it's for whatever reason under the sun. So just pointing out that some people could, you know, got maybe don't get the diagnosis as fast as they want, but it's because they were put off, you know, by, you know, multiple people like over the course of time. And so that still is happening. I know it happened for me over... Yeah. It's very much happening. And like now the rate, instead of being one in 500, is one in 36. And still about half the kids don't get a diagnosis until kindergarten. And I I mean, I was in denial, but I still was asking the questions. Could it be autism? And I was getting that false reassurance. No, it's just a boy. He's already talking. He's too warm and cuddly with you. He has some language. And yeah, so he was diagnosed one day before he was three and he started treatment at 39 months, which again, isn't that late. And I say now, like it's never too early and never too late to start good child-friendly therapy, whatever it's called. And so if you're out there listening and think, well, I already have an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old, or it's not too late 
And if therapy is great and working, the child's happy, the child's making progress, you're not stressed, great. But chances are something is not as great as it could be. And that's where I do believe that as a mom and a professional and with all my experience, I do know how to turn things around in kids of any age or ability level. So why don't you speak to that? What do you mean by turn things around? Are you talking about curing autism or is this something different? No, that's a good question. And I've gotten, you know, people that don't like the title of my book, you know, they don't like the title of anything I title, which is hard. It's hard to title things, even the term autism mom. Oh, yeah. Oh, I get hell for this all the time. (laughs) For anything. And you just like, you go to title something and it's like, it's three to four words. You got to put them together in some kind of unique way. You got to catch people's attention so they know what it's about. (laughs) So when I came up with the title, it was actually to name my podcast. And I was taking a how to do a podcast course. And it was like three to four words, you know, your subject in the title. SEO. And yeah, you know, I thought turn autism around was catchy and, and it doesn't mean curing. It means turning things around. People are like, well, I don't want my autism turned around. Well, good for you. God bless you. If you are just like I said, if you've got therapy going, your child's happy, you're not stressed, everything's going well, and the child's making progress. Awesome. Then you probably don't need or want to listen to me. But for 90, 90% of the people I know out there, things could be improved in my life too. You know, it's like, not like it's a moving target Yeah. You know, to, you know, okay, now we want him to floss his teeth. Oh, now he needs to shave with a real razor. Oh, now he needs to go to the food bank to volunteer. And what does that look like? And what about if he's midway through the line? I mean, there's constantly stuff. Right? Absolutely. That you have to learn about to make, to make it better. So what I say is, is turning autism around means we work on increasing language, decreasing tantrums, improving picky eating, sleeping, potty training, going to the doctor's dentist without a fuss and having each child reach their fullest potential and being as safe as possible, as independent as possible, and as happy as possible. It's all based on the science of ABA. The science is always working. Like people are like, I don't like ABA. ABA is a the science of ABA is always working. It's like saying you don't believe in physics. If a behavior is reinforced, not even if you reinforce it, if it's reinforced by some thing or some person, it will maintain or go up. So the science is always working. I'm not saying that ABA programs are always working. I've seen it not work. I've seen well-meaning behavior analysts, speech pathologists, occupational therapists, not that they're trying to do anything harmful or not good, but it's not good. So I don't care what you call your therapy. I like to train parents because I think like Lisa and myself, I mean, we're what I call very gung-ho parents. And even if I know we're going to talk more about problem behaviors, but even if your child goes to a clinic or a school and they've got problem behaviors at or near zero there, if it's not problem behaviors at or near zero across home, school, community, new situations, old situations, going to the doctors, there's room for improvement. And I just believe that, especially if you've got one highly motivated parent, you can make a lot more progress. 
A hundred percent. I So before we move on to where you shine with the problem behaviors and everything that you just mentioned, I wanted to go back to you were giving some details about your job. I, I think you were a managing nurse of a program. So tons of responsibilities, very, I imagine, organized person, take charge, leadership person. And I see that in so many of my clients what I call very type A motivated people. And so they get the diagnosis and they're like, let me at it. I've got the spreadsheets. I've got the research. I'm going to figure this out. And my experience, and that was definitely my experience. And so I got very much into that tackling it, planning kind of mode. And it was almost like your powers don't work here anymore, right? Like autism is not going to obey your to-do list, right? It is its own thing. And so being able to adjust to this perception that I've had and I know my clients had of doing lots of work, lots of input and not seeing the result or at least immediately or at least in the way that you expected or wanted it, I think can be so frustrating. And I'm just wondering if you experienced that. Yeah, totally. I think I wouldn't describe myself as type A, but I'm very, I'm like a dog with a bone. And I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to give it the college try. And I'm going to try to, you know, tackle things and, and make things better. And, you know, a couple things, there was a book that I read early on, Let Me Hear Your Voice, that the author said, you have to work like it all depends on you and pray like it all depends on God. And like, even in my first book, I'm like, if, if it was all about work, like Lucas would be so advanced. And so, you know, like, I I think even people sometimes, especially early on, they would be like, well, if she's so good, then why is her child still moderate, severe autism Mm -hmm. needs constant supervision, you know? I've kind of let that go. And then the other thing is I've worked with very wealthy families at times Mm -hmm. in the past. And I pretty much told them that this was like the first and only thing that they've experienced where you can't pay to fix something. Yeah. You can't throw enough money, resources, or to-do list at this. And, you know, they flew me to places and, you know, wanted me to fix things. And I'm all about putting my four-step system in place and making things better. And I mean, I can't imagine where Lucas would be if I wasn't a behavior analyst and a registered nurse and an advocate and all the things. But, and the other important thing, which I love what you're doing, Lisa, you know, because I've interviewed you is you only have one time for Lucas to be three or four or nine or go for his first IEP meeting or, or turn 14, the age of transitioning or So you only have one, you know, chance to get that period right. But at the same time, you also yourself only have one life and your kids, your other kids only have one life. So I see a lot of times, especially early on, and I did it and I'm sure you did it too, like kind of throwing yourself overboard. Yeah. And then you have to, at some point go like, whoa, let's not throw out the whole family jumping overboard you know, and every family's different and every child's different, but, you know, we really have to put our oxygen masks on first and we need to really just not chasing after, you know, miracle things. And, you know, it is just yeah. hard, hard to know what to invest in. And it's not like anything. Else. I mean, I have a relative with MS, you know, 
And then she's got to go off this med and on this bed. You know, it's like, you don't know because everything's kind of an experiment, right? So is this going to make it worse? Is it going to make it better? It doesn't really make it better. It just makes it not progress. Well, how do you know how, you know, nobody has a crystal ball to look backwards or forwards. And so you just have to do, you know, what you think is best going forward. I completely agree. Like I remember when we were presented with different therapy options when my son was younger and you know this was way back before ABA was like, you know, covered by insurance and you know there weren't clinics at least that I knew of or around me and deciding which path we were going to go and I just remember like telling myself like this is the road we're going to walk down and I'm not going to look down the other roads anymore. Like I did my due diligence, but here's where we're going. Because if I keep thinking, oh, well, what if we did what, you know, this person's parents or that person's parents were doing, what would things look like? Like I would never be able to get the benefit out of what we were doing. And I would just completely second guess myself. And that would be a miserable experience. Mm-hmm. And on the other point of what you were saying, you know, when I got to the tween mark or the you know the teen mark with my son and things were getting more and more challenging i was at the point of like okay i've gotten through to this point but how am i going to keep going to middle school to high school what will this look like and that was like the first time that i actually stood back and was thinking like i am the biggest influence in his long-term prognosis in terms of like i am the advocate for him i am the person who is going to you know, work as hard as she can to figure it out. So if I burn out and, you know, if I crash and burn, I'm of no use to him. And so that's when this whole, you know, life coaching, you know, as a client and now what I do with parents, I saw like how critical it was because we know that like so many parents, especially the mothers will just go gun ho like for their children. And, you know, I'll be okay once they're okay. And the fact is, it's like the parents aren't okay. And that's a big deal. So I, Mary, I want to shift on to where you shine. And I know that you work very closely with families on how they can help their children with problem behaviors. And you mentioned a couple that I hear about all the time, the dentist office, clipping the nails. And so take us through that. What do you offer? How do you offer it? And all the things. Yeah, so I do think that no matter what age or ability level your child's at, you should not assume that problem behaviors, major problem behaviors, you know, aggression, self-injurious behavior, property destruction, you should not accept that that has to be a part of autism or that that's even a part of autism. Because I think the number one thing you can do to make sure that your tweens and your adults and, you know, as much as humanly possible, if you can get major problem behaviors at or near zero, it's going to make everything so much better, right? Because that's the number one thing from the studies I've read. And I do, I have a PhD in leadership as well. And I've done, you know, leadership kind of papers and also moms. I actually published an article way back in 2007, the experiences of autism mothers who become behavior analysts. And in that qualitative study that I did with like six autism moms, ECBAs, the number one thing they said was, you know, we've got to train parents on how to control problem behaviors because 
when problem behaviors escalate, that causes the most stress in homes. So my big thing is we've got to get problem behaviors. I've got to take my 20 plus years of experience as a behavior analyst and also my experience as a nurse with a master's and a PhD and an advocate. And I've got to translate that to parents and professionals. Because mm-hmm. even, even behavior analysts and speech pathologists, if they don't understand how to not reinforce problem behaviors, it's going to get reinforced. And so then, you know, the haircut going bad or the hold down for the blood draw is going to literally, could literally affect bath time or shower Mm -hmm. time or getting your family pictures taken. You're like, how can that be? But I have an example, actually, in chapter 13 of Turn Autism Around is, is a chapter called Doctors, Dentists, and Haircuts. And we had a online course participant who all of a sudden she's posting her child wouldn't get in the bathtub. She used to like it. Now she didn't. And what should she do? And, and I went in and I said, by chance, did anybody hold her down for anything at a doctor's? And she was held down the week before. And then we had to repair the bathtub. We had to let her stand outside the bathtub with her clothes on. I mean, I never saw this mom. I never met her in person. I never saw the kid. I wasn't, you know, and I don't have to. And in our online course and community, we don't tell you exactly what to do, mm-hmm. but we give you some ideas like, okay, well, if she's screaming to get in the bathtub, you can't just like think that that's going to get better, you know, okay. on its own. So you have to back up and repair the situation like bathtub toys, letting her stand outside, letting her wear a bathing suit and just stand up to splash around. And Within a week, she was all better asking for more bath time. So I asked Michelle, okay, exactly what did you do? And it's <laughs> it's in, in this chapter. So, you know, 210 is the actual list taken from our ideas of what she had to do in order. But we it's the same procedures for repairing haircuts, nail clipping, blood draws, dental checks and okay so that's all the repair what do you do to prevent well no matter what the problem behavior is we want to go through the four steps of the turn autism around approach we need to assess what's happening Mm -hmm. so assess okay what are not just the big tantrums look like what are all the problem behaviors and not just about problem behaviors so I, in my book, I have a one-page assessment that I actually invested a lot of time and money with a computer software company. You can do the whole digital assessment for free at this point. So anyway, that assesses quickly in 10 minutes where your child is at in terms of language, in terms of sleeping, eating, potty training, and problem behaviors, safety awareness and problem behaviors. A lot of our kids have big safety issues too, elopement, water, traffic, strangers. So we need to get a snapshot of everything because if a child's on the floor having a tantrum and I come across this, my questions aren't going to be, well, they're going to be, why is she crying? Why is she on the floor? But my first questions are going to be age and ability level. Like, does she talk? Okay. Is she two or is she five? And then why is she on the floor? Why is she crying? 
if nobody attends to her, does this escalate to self-injurious behavior? If somebody does tend to her, does it escalate to aggression? And then also, how often does this happen? Is this five times a day or one time a week or one time a month? So there we're getting an assessment. And I think people want to dive right into what should I do? What's the reactive strategy? It's the wrong question. Because if we get into self-injurious or an aggression, it's not a win-win. Reactive strategies are just a band-aid to keep the child safe. So keep the child safe is what you do when it's happening. If the child's small enough, you can pick them up from the parking lot and put them in the car seat. That's what you do. If the child's you know, too big, but will stand up if you offer them a Pop-Tart. And even in the middle of a problem behavior, if they're in the parking lot on the ground, you do whatever you need to do to get them up. But then you have to think, okay, we got to assess, we have to, you know, make a plan. We have to spend 95% of our time preventing. So preparing and repairing the tub, for instance, Can you just go back and say, what are the four steps? You said assessment. So assessment, plan, teach, and use easy data to evaluate. Those four steps are are the steps of the Turn Autism Around approach. Assess, plan, teach, and evaluate. They're also the four steps of the scientific method. But it sounds simple, and then it sounds complex, and it's both. Because not only do you have this circle of problem behaviors happening, you've got the circle of language and language acquisition, and you've got the circle of self-care. So when they have a problem behavior related to picky eating, that's desensitization, but that might also be an oral motor problem with swallowing. It might also be a sensory, can't tolerate different textures or the sights of different colored foods. It's so complicated, right? So with dressing or grooming or is it a bathtub, she won't get in the bath or is it they won't transition from a bath to a shower and they're to the age where you want that to happen. So a couple of key points, you need to start with an assessment, not just of the problem behaviors, but the whole picture as quickly as possible. And you want to spend 95% of your time on prevention. You want to use eight positives to every negative. So it's a common occurrence if I would, and I don't do independent evaluations anymore, but if I did, if I went into a kid that was struggling, a lot of times they would be like, stop that, Nate, I told you, if you don't stop that, we're going to lose recess, you know, stop kicking the chair, you know, it's negative, negative, Mm -hmm. negative, negative. It needs to be the opposite. It needs to be positive, like, like the way you did that, good holding your pencil correctly. Oh, that was awesome good saying cow, whatever the language is about. Our kids need, we all need a positive to every negative. If you go into a work situation or a relative situation and it's negative, you want to get out of there. Yeah, Our kids need positive child-friendly techniques. So I would just say, you know, really take a step back and the goal should be to get the major problem behaviors at or near zero. And you're probably going to need help. And I have lots of resources. I have my book, I have my digital assessment, and I have my online courses, which can be helpful. So you said earlier that 90% of the time needs to be spent on prevention. What does that look like? Yeah, it's actually 95%. 95. (laughs) It's arbitrary because 
it doesn't really matter. It's just most of your time, you need to have that positive, child-friendly approach. And so you need to be working on, you know, repairing, you know, the bathtub, or you need to be serving with picky eating, for instance. You need to be serving foods your child will eat 95% of your time. You might have a program that you work out, maybe with a feeding specialist if your child is, you know, having severe feeding issues, but maybe it's just reading a chapter of my book or looking at a blog. I have a chart that I encourage people to make. I mean, it's for, it's in my book. So it would be, say you have an extremely picky eater. So you get out a piece of loose leaf or you get the chart from my book and you basically do it three columns. So one column is easy, one column is medium, one column is difficult. So in the easy foods that your child will eat any time of the day or night, or it's usually a bunch of junk food. Right. Chicken <laughs> you know. nuggets, mac and cheese. <laughs> but a lot of kids will only eat certain chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. So is is that the case for your son or was it? In the Honestly, we, I never, he would eat any, he, he wasn't a picky enough eater for it to be a problem. Put it that okay. way. Yeah. But you've heard of other yes, people. Yes, absolutely. Dinosaur-shaped nuggets. So in the easy column might be dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets, right? And maybe McDonald's chicken nuggets. So in the medium column, and maybe no fruits or vegetables, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the medium column, those are things that your child will eat if they're really hungry or they've eaten in the past or sometimes if you stand on your foot and it's mm-hmm. a full moon, they might eat it. And in that medium column might be Wendy's chicken nuggets or Tyson's chicken nuggets or maybe blueberries or maybe dried bananas or something like that. And then in the difficult column are all the foods you want them to eat, but there's like little to no way that they're even going to tolerate the food, let alone eating it. So some preventative strategies would be and this is outlined in my book and my courses and everything, is prevention number one is stop allowing total grazing throughout the day. Like there was, you know, one of my clients who refused breakfast and then he was allowed to have two bowls of Lucky Charms walking around throughout the morning. So stop the grazing of foods and junk foods so that the child is literally hungrier at mealtime, right? So then even serving meals, so that would be one preventative strategy. You would use your easy, medium, difficult chart to serve foods at a table that are easy. And then you might start incorporating, because a child will be hungrier, right? Because they're not grazing throughout the day. Part of the 5% more difficult demands might be to tolerate a bite or two from a Wendy's chicken nugget, or, you know, the child may be hungry enough that that's just what we're having and they'll eat it because it's very similar. So I don't recommend, you know, sitting down with difficult medium and difficult food and having the child cry. Like if, if they're crying, you've gone too far, you're not preventing and you got to go back. So Mary, is the idea then we would only feed our kids food that they would like and they would never get upset? Because if so, how would we get them to, I don't know, have a more well-rounded diet? Right. So 
in the beginning, if we have problem behaviors, the child screaming and crying, or worse yet, screaming and crying and having aggression or self-injurious behavior, the child's not learning. You're getting stressed out. The whole family's getting stressed out. And so how much of that well-balanced food are they actually ingesting? Probably nothing. And if a child's crying, you should not be feeding them. There's too big of a choking hazard. So yeah, in the beginning, you are going to use those preventative strategies to feed them easy foods that they're going to like. But at the same time, you're also going to be preventing grazing and ingesting lots of junk food throughout so that eventually when they come to the table, then you can start doing two thirds or or three quarters of food they like with some medium foods, not Mm -hmm. some typical foods. You can go like, oh, we're out of yellow macaroni and cheese. We have white macaroni and cheese today, but you only have to eat a little bit of it. Okay, Um, I see. But but we really need to stop accepting that having temper tantrums over food is normal, that having temper tantrums over going to the dentist is normal. We have to prevent them. And it's a lot of work, but you know what? especially as children are getting bigger and growing older, if you hold them down at two or you force them at three, it's not going to be pretty when they're six and 10 and 25. Yeah, I certainly agree that that's true. It does not get easier as they get bigger. I would also want to like interject for my audience because I'm talking to autism moms about how they are often putting a lot of burden and responsibility on themselves. And of course, that is what comes with having a child with special needs. But I also don't want the message to be, and if your child is having a temper tantrum, that's because you failed. Oh, no. I mean, kids will cry here and there, but we shouldn't just accept that that's the way it's going to be because there are better ways. And eventually, you know, I say, okay, if your child is having major problem behaviors, it's usually because the demands are too high and or reinforcement is too low. So if I gave you $1,000 for your child to have a good day or even an hour with no problem behaviors, we would have to flip that to be really high reinforcement, really low demands. So what I'm saying is moms and dads and therapists really need to kind of be the spoiling grandma to get things better right? To get you back paired, to get the food repaired, to get the kitchen table repaired. And then once we have the reinforcement really high and the demands really low, then we can systematically fade in demands. Because what I see is people just being like, well, that's just part of autism. We're just going to have to have every meal time and every bedtime and every homework time be a battle. And it doesn't have to be. Well, I think it's such a great point that you bring up about having the reward and benefit being really high and the demands being low, because I know for myself and for sure some of my clients, there's a resistance, an internal resistance to that that we're sometimes not even conscious of, of like, you should just do it or I shouldn't have to work this hard. It shouldn't be this way. You know, a lot of what I talk about, like the resisting of reality And, you know, I think a lot of us might have this idea, you know, kids are supposed to, you know, do this because I said so. And so could you just speak to that in your role um, as a professional, but also a parent who has lived this? Yeah. Well, and this isn't just for kids with autism. I mean, I have another son who's 
18 months younger than Lucas. He's in medical school now. And he was a picky eater. He slept like crap. I didn't know what I was doing back then. I wasn't a behavior analyst when they were little. And so these are just like very good parenting strategies. It really doesn't have to do with autism. If you have a picky eater, you know, if you were extremely picky or you were starting a brand new job and I said everything was going to be super hard, you'd be freaking out, right? If I sat down to learn to fly a plane and you kept going on and on about the buttons and I have no idea what you're talking about, I start crying. I start hyperventilating crying and you keep going with the buttons. Nobody's learning. Yeah. So this really, it just has to do with positive, proactive parenting and just easing the demands, you know, for our kids with autism, especially there's additional sensory issues. There's additional language comprehension issues. There's additional tolerating, you know, smells and the sight of food. And so we don't have to think that this is all going to change overnight either, but, you know, really breaking things down saying, okay, Let's try to use the $1,000 meal. You know, if I was given $1,000 for him to sit at the table and eat, even if it's more junky food or the dino nuggets that he likes, like, can he do that? I mean, my son does that. My son eats chicken and fries in the air fryer every single day of his life. Is that bad? I mean, he could have a well-balanced, you know what? He takes multivitamins. I think we just need to adjust our expectations too, that it doesn't have to look perfect. I mean, he eats raw spinach with his chicken and fries. Does he have the most well-balanced diet? No. Could I work on that? Probably. But it's like, you can only do so much, right? Right, right. No, that's such a great point. I do think problem behaviors across the board are something that you can't not work on. Yeah, because I think that there are a lot more consequences to those behaviors, especially as the child gets older and bigger. And it goes from like, oh, they're cute little kid to like, they're a big person who's acting out. There's something that you said that I hear all the time from my clients where they say, I can't figure out if this is like because they're three or is this the autism? If they are five or it's because the autism. And I'm just wondering... I'm curious how to you respond to that when it comes to, let's just say, behaviors. Yeah, I wouldn't blame anything on autism or necessarily age either. Mm, okay. <laughs> now, granted, when my kids were three and five, I didn't know what I was doing. So I wasn't a behavior analyst. I didn't know. But I did do a podcast with my only full-time employee, and she brought her little three-year-old here to take videos and pictures with me. And he started throwing things and started hitting her. And she has a master's in special ed. And she's been through all my courses and everything. And she was like, no, thank you. We don't hit. You need to pick that up. I mean, very pleasant. But, you know, he was starting to have more tantrums and more, you know, hitting and throwing. For a three-year-old, you'd be like, well, that's three. But I'm like, no. It's not my kid. So I wasn't like, no, right. But when he through the train and hit her car with it, she was almost in tears. Like, I know I can fix this. Like, obviously it's something I'm doing because he only does this with me. He doesn't do this at daycare. He doesn't do it with his dad. So she was aware that any behaviors being reinforced is going to maintain her goal. 
So while she was on her way home, I wrote her an email and told her the steps I would take. And all child friendly. And within two days is hitting and throwing went to zero. And he's a year older. And he they took him on a cruise, you know, at three and a half. And these other kids were misbehaving and stuff. And and Everett goes, that is not the way we act. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you tell her? <laughs> Can we so have this email? <laughs> yeah, actually, it's on the show notes. I believe it's 185, marybarbera.com forward slash 185. In the show notes, I actually put the email. But basically, okay. because he was, you know, he was three, and but he was like, he's typically developing. So I said to her, you need to sit down when he's calm, you and your husband, and tell him that since he's three, you're going to have a new rule that there's going to be no throwing except for outside balls you can throw. But inside the house, there's no throwing and there's no hitting. And if he does throw, if he forgets and throws, mommy or daddy are going to take anything because he was also like coming into my house with two things, like a dinosaur and a train. And so then that was control, like and like safety reasons, he couldn't hold hands and stuff if he's hoarding stuff and insisting on carrying things. So if you throw something, we're going to gently take everything out of your hands until you're calm, and then you can have your things back. And that was it. And then hitting, you would, we were just going to help you put your hands to yourself, and we were going to wait until you're calm, and then we could go on. And basically, they had to do that procedure like twice for like less than a minute. And then, you know, he was like at the beach a couple months later and his cousins were throwing sand. So he said, mommy, are, am I allowed to throw sand? She's like, I don't think that's a good idea. He goes, oh, okay, I'm not allowed to throw sand. I feel like that might take a little bit longer for a kid with autism. <laughs> right. It might, but there's, you know, you, you asked, is it age or is it autism? Yeah. It, in my mind, it's neither. It's just not setting like a consequence and expectations. Like he wasn't throwing and hitting at school because they had the expectations. Not that I, I don't like timeout. I don't like any punishment, you know, but gently taking things out and allowing them to cry for a minute, I think is worth it in the long run. And then Rachel was able to take her baby Everett and a five-year-old niece to the zoo by herself because she knew Everett would listen. He would hold her hand. So I think when kids start to act out, I don't think we should blame it on anything. I think we should come up with a plan to get those major problem behaviors to zero. Okay. Mary, thank you so much for that. I love having your perspective, given your background as both a parent and a professional. Is there anything else you want to end with and tell us how we can find you? Yeah. So marybarbera.com is my website. If you can't, if you're out running or or running errands or whatever, and you don't know how to spell my last name, you can always search Mary Autism plus whatever topic you're struggling with or somebody struggling with. I have, you know, free guides for potty and for sleep and I have video blogs and all the things. I also think that, you know, if you're having major problem behaviors or even minor problem behaviors, and you're also having problems with talking and picky eating and sleeping or any of those issues combined, I really do think your best path forward is to join a course or community with me. I just recently talked to somebody in the in the fall and she was all excited. She was thinking about joining my online course and she's like, well, I have a five-year-old and I've listened to every single one of your podcasts. And that's over 200 episodes and each of them are like this long. Right. 
you need to join the course. Like, yeah. and she did. <laughs> and then I interviewed her and now she's in our train the trainer program. And she's, you know, she's glad she tried it. Cause I think staying in what I call like the sea of free, especially when you're dealing with major problem behaviors. I mean, that all sounds well and good for Rachel and Everett to get us throwing to zero in a day, but like, you're right, Lisa, like, you know, it gets more complicated when kids have multiple issues. And I really do think that, you know, at least considering the course and community is a great idea. So Mary autism plus a topic, marybarbera.com get you to all my resources and, you know, just stay in touch. Like Lisa's, you know, services are great. And I really do think that like a combination of using Lisa for, you know, your own mindset and keeping your sanity and pushing forward without losing yourself and then learning like the really practical step-by-step strategies to get you to the next level might be a really good combination. Yeah. I coach a lot of my parents who are starting on different services, you know, whether it's ABA or having therapy in their house, but how they're managing their own emotions and reactions around that. Because when you start to implement these different practices, it, you know, extinction burst, right? Like you're, sometimes it gets a bit harder before you see that progress and working through that can be really difficult. And then when you layer things like kids getting sick and lack of sleep for, you know, days or weeks, like it gets complicated. All right. Well, thank you again. And I will be seeing you in person in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're both going, going I'm going to Minnesota for the more than a caregiver retreat where you will be a keynote speaker. I will. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so excited. I'm going to meet meet you in person. That's awesome. Yep. I'm going to be doing a breakout room on Saturday. So I will see you there. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you. All right. All right, Mary. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening to the Autism Mom Coach podcast. If you want to get links to Mary's resources, go to the show notes. And if you have not already, please sign up for my free webinar overcoming burnout in five simple steps. It will be available one more time this month on April 20th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Thanks and talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Autism Mom Coach. If you want more information or the show notes and resources from the podcast, visit theautismmomcoach.com. See you next week.